and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Today, we're featuring an episode from the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. Published by the MIT Press, Harvard Data Science Review is an open-access, multidisciplinary journal that defines and shapes data science as a scientifically rigorous field, based on the principled and purposed production, processing, parsing, and analysis of data. In this episode, the journal's features editor, Liberty Vitter, and editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng, dig into the data behind sports with two experts, Brian McDonald, faculty in sports analytics at Carnegie Mellon University, and Kirk Goldsberry, NBA analyst at ESPN and author of Sprawl Ball. We hope you enjoy this exploration of how teams collect and use data in sports. If you would like to learn more about the Harvard Data Science Review, please find the journal on Twitter at BHDSR, and remember to subscribe to their podcast on your favorite platform. Welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, the media feature editor for the Harvard Data Science Review. I'm Xiao Liman, the editor-in-chief of Harvard Data Science Review. Today, we are talking about the data behind sports. It's about getting things down to one number. Using stats the way we read them, we'll find value in players that nobody else can see. The 2011 movie Moneyball put a spotlight on the roles of data science in baseball, a sport well-known for its endless numbers, stats, and data-collecting fans. But data science doesn't stop with baseball. Almost every aspect of sport is being analyzed. Cameras are not just on the court, but players are also wearing data-collecting tech and giving teams all kinds of information about the game. How is all this data changing the games we love to watch? Today, we are putting such questions to Brian McDonald, faculty in sports analytics at Carnegie Mellon University and Harvard Data Science Review contributor on this topic, and Kirk Goldsberry, NBA analyst at ESPN and author of Sprawl Ball. Thanks to you both for joining us on the HDSR podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Good to be here. So my first question really goes to Brian. You know, what kind of data teams are collecting and how and what is an example of insights you can get from it? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, the answer to that has evolved over time, especially in the past 10 years or so. You know, in the past, teams would mostly have data on final outcomes of games or final outcomes of plays at most. But in, you know, recent times, you know, which is the topic of the article, player tracking data has become available for many of these leagues. It's player location data. So you get the location of the players and the ball or the puck several times a second throughout the entire game. And it's much more granular than the data that had existed uh, prior to this uh, technology. And so with this data, it's possible to answer thousands of different kinds of questions that you might want to be able to ask about a particular play or an entire game or a player's ability sort of like a goldmine for data analysts. It's opened the door for thousands of new questions that can be answered. I see. And I can certainly see how uh, data scientists in that area will have lots of fun with tons of data. But the question is, like, how do these you know, insights generated by these analysis used by players, coaches, and the management, what's the real impact do they have? 
A couple of the, the big questions that it helps answer is, you know, what should we do um, in, in particular player personnel decisions? Should we make this trade for this player that this other team proposed? Who should we draft? You know, who should we sign in free agency? So these are the kinds of questions that management would want to answer using um, this data. And then there's uh, another set of questions that would be like coaching decisions as opposed to management decisions. So um, coaches might want to know, you know, what what kind of plays have been effective, what kinds of, you know, player combinations have been the most effective and things like that. So I would say that those are probably the two biggest categories of types of problems, like the management decisions and then coaching decisions. Kirk, I wanted to ask you about the mapping that you did of the five seasons worth of NBA shooting data, which is a serious amount of data. What were your findings from all this work and data collection? You know, actually, when I was at at Harvard in 2011, I started to look at NBA's play-by-play data, uh, which, as Brian describes, is sort of the old school data at this point. So it's also interesting to note that that was 10 years ago. We were really looking at outcomes only. And my sort of contribution to sports analytics, particularly basketball analysis at that time, was essentially, why aren't we mapping these data? Why aren't we using like precise spatial analysis to visualize the spatial structure um, of individual NBA players shooting tendencies and shooting abilities, as well as teams, the league at large? Let's reveal the, the spatial nature of scoring efficiency on the surface of the basketball court. At that time, player tracking was just starting to creep into the NBA. But really, the the takeaway 10 years ago was very simple. That was, there are two really efficient scoring options from a shot selection point of view in the NBA. One is near the basketball hoop, and the other one is behind the three-point arc. Everything else is foolish. In other words, two-point jump shots are, are really inefficient Um, relative to three-point jump shots, and they're relatively inefficient compared to closer two-point shots. Um, And so that sort of analytical wake-up call, along with demonstrations of the the incredible three-point shooting of players like Stephen Curry and James Harden and Houston Rockets, James is now in Brooklyn, proved the sort of spatial terrain of the NBA. And that's really what's driven this caricature now in shot selection over the last 10 years, um, which is just the basic realization that there are really good spots on the chessboard to shoot from and really bad ones to shoot from. So would that have a big effect on what players people valued as good players? Like the ones who can shoot the three-point shots are the ones you want, and the ones who are the two, two-point shooters are really just not as valuable anymore? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question, and the answer is definitively yes. In fact, there's a number of individuals in the NBA right now that were borderline pro basketball players five years ago that are making major money now. You know, somebody like Seth Curry or Duncan Robinson, who could barely get, not Steph Curry, Seth Curry, his brother, were fringe players um, in the NBA. And now, to their credit and to the movement of the basketball league around them, have become centerpieces, have become really important rotation players on good teams. Um, And that is because the league cares more and more about your ability to shoot the ball from 24 feet away than it does all these other things. You know, this was something like as a fan, you wouldn't necessarily see right off the bat or you wouldn't understand that it's because of data analytics. And if the idea of basketball, and to both of you guys, is that, you know, basketball is sort of this game of sequences 
statistics don't necessarily reflect this. So like, what is it that as fans we don't see behind the game that's driving things? There's two things that are happening and you hit on the first one, which is the players that are being drafted and matriculating into the best pro basketball league on the planet all for the most part can shoot threes now with some exceptions, but for the most part, uh, that wasn't true 20 years ago. Um, so I think what you're not seeing is that evaluation framework that we just touched on where shooting has become something that really differentiates a potential pro basketball player from a definite pro basketball player. That skill is a litmus test in a draft room at this point. And that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not for long. That's something you don't see. Uh, and the other thing is guys in practice are practicing shots they would never practice 10 years ago. Because of this awakening, you can see drills that you would have never seen 10 years ago. For instance, Damian Lillard in the Portland Trailblazers routinely practices 30-foot shots seriously. Um, and when I was a younger person, those were jokes. Those were things you would goof off around with at the end of practice. And now that is a thing that is a serious skill. And the other one like that is dribbling into three-point shots. That used to be a cardinal sin in pro basketball. And now some coaches like Rick Carlisle was, is, was just quoted as saying this for the Dallas Mavericks. Now we're training our players to do that. Now we're drilling our players to do that. Ten years ago, we were yelling at our players for doing that. So that is the kind of stuff that we're not seeing in the games that leads to the things we're seeing in the games, that sort of personnel awakening, and then the things that guys are practicing in the gym behind closed doors. Well, this is fascinating that this seems like a change again fundamentally from a fan's perspective, from a viewer's. Does that make the game more interesting to watch, just seeing people shooting from long distance instead of trying to traverse, you know, get closer? Is that changing that aspect as well? That's a good question, actually. I was watching some old NBA games a couple of months ago. I don't even remember which one, but I think it was just from like 10 or 15 years ago. And I I think I liked it less, the older style of play. I like, I loved the NBA back then, but I think I like the new style better. And I was, I was just watching these games wondering why there was no one at the three-point line. Everyone was like crammed into the paint where there's no, there's no room to move anywhere in the paint. Maybe I'm biased because now I'm just thinking to myself, oh, this is so suboptimal. Why are they doing this? And so, you know, it probably just depends on what kind of basketball you like to watch. I think if there's one sport that has sort of a real answer to the last question, has data science or analytics made the sport better or worse, it's the sport of baseball. And they are, are sort of going through a crisis they uh, are seeing increased strikeouts, home runs, not a lot of balls in play, which has really reduced the sort of action in an average baseball game because post-moneyball baseball really had a simple awakening that these kinds of outcomes are the most trainable, most controllable, most reliable in, in the sport. So now players are training to throw as hard as they can to strike out as many batters as they can to swing as hard as they can to hit as many home runs as they can. Um, and you're seeing entire recruiting and pro personnel evaluation tools sway towards 
velocity, velocity, velocity is baseball's answer to shooting, shooting, shooting. They want their pitchers to throw harder, 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 which is just leading to more and more of these strikeouts and more and more home runs because the guys who swing harder are making it. So they are affecting how we recruit younger players and how we evaluate them as we get more and more of this analytical awareness of what really links to winning games and outcomes. Um, One of the things I think we can use analytics to do is to elevate the aesthetics of our sport. And that was what I talked about at the Sloan Conference last year is is using data science not to figure out how to beat my opponent, but at the league level to figure out how to optimize the kinds of things I want to happen on the playing surface, the shot selection of NBA players, the number of shots in an NHL game, how how big should the goal in the NHL be, Um, what should the puck be made of, How bouncy should the baseball be? These are the questions that I think are really interesting from um, the 2020s in sports analytics. How can we govern our sports creatively using data science? Uh, I think Moneyball sort of framed data analytics as something one team uses to beat another team. And we've sort of lost sight of this other opportunity that we can use it to optimize the aesthetics and the beauty of the sports that we love to watch so much. So I think that's interesting too. You know, clearly this is a great example of how the data science itself is having impact on the sports. And I certainly want to ask you about, you know, in general, what do you think, see how things are going from here in terms of the uh, impact of data science on sports? But I also want to ask the reverse question. Uh, what are these, uh, you know, these kind of analysis you know, impact this data science itself? Because you obviously have these spatial, temporal, you know, all these hard, you know, ones that usually or what students are trying to avoid when there's a homework problem. So I want to ask you this kind of impact moving forward uh, to both of you and, and, and you know, in both ways. I mean, one of the impacts that sports has had on data science is that I think, you know, the movie Moneyball helped the term analytics or the term data science become more mainstream. I've heard several times from people in a variety of different industries, hey, we want to do Moneyball, but for blank. So I think like, you know, the use of it in in sports, the fact that it's being used on TV and baseball broadcasts, uh, they're talking about, you know, spin rate and exit velocity, all things that are more advanced statistics than what we've been accustomed to for 100 years. It's becoming more normal for people to see that kind of thing. and, And then it becomes more normal for them to see it in other industries. So I think that's one way sports is impacting data science. Yeah, Charlie, I'll just add that I think it's a great question. And one of the big things that I would say is that Moneyball is a poetic and seminal book in this space for a reason. It does a couple things. It's really a testament to the intrusion of financial reasoning into sports. It's written by a bond tradesman from Wall Street who had written extensively about finance for years Um, and really started to pour in finance capitalism ideology into the sports world. And really, it's a call to arms for sports teams to start thinking more like hedge funds. Uh, And and I think that's the broader thing. And this numerical packaging uh, that has come to sort of be inseparable from sports discourse, this thick layer of numerical packaging, is akin really to the finance market, the pages of the finance section. Um, And and we talk about performers in sports a lot like 
Goldman Sachs might talk about uh, an asset performance. And indeed, I would say one more thing, you know, the terms that we're starting to see creep into sports discourse are financial in nature. We see um, the word asset, the word efficiency coming into fashion in, in post money ball, as Brian points out. So I don't know if it's a data science infiltration just yet, but just as the finance, the big banks started to leverage statistics and data modeling and data science, indeed, sports have, have reached that same point. Kirk, do you feel that this is a good thing? You know, now that like, does this make the game better for the fans to have all these data analytics and to be sort of treated like they're in hedge fund? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, sports are sort of the celebration of humanity. Um, and you go to a pro sports event to see a human being do something that you only wish you could do and sort of bask in that joy and have some friendships and, 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 and root for the good team or the home team, as the song says. I don't think this heavy amount of numerical packaging has done anything profound to help the game itself. I think the game is largely for young people, but it, it has sort of added this sort of financial enlightenment to discussing it. And maybe that's a big contribution to some people. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think the sport itself has benefited from this, or I don't think it's been hurt by it. Let me be clear on that too. I just think it's a larger cultural shift that we're all quantitative. We're all data scientists now. Um, we count how many you know people like our dog picture on social media, and that means something to us. I do think if there is one good thing is that I saw it with my book and stuff, and you see it in my students, some people are more drawn to math because of this. Some people are more drawn to data science classes at college because of this. And some people are, are challenging themselves to get smarter in, in new ways because they want to be part of this discussion. And so that might be a really cool thing. And I'm glad you guys brought that up. You know, it's great because if you're trying to learn statistics and data science, it's much easier to learn those things if you're studying a subject that you know something about. Oh, that's a t really terrific point. And, uh, you know, we all teach at the universities. And one struggle we always have is to ensure the students will be interested in what you're doing, but because something they are very passionate about, right? And, you know, sports is one of the, those things that uh, most people can can relate to. That actually relates uh, really a great segue to the question I was thinking to ask you, which is uh, are data and analytics itself being used now for these, uh, you know, high school, college recruiting to these sports teams? Are they actively using those tools as well? I think there are some pro teams who are, are using analytics to determine who they should be drafting. Um, at the college level, um, as far as recruiting, I mean, there are some organizations who are trying to do a little bit of this, but the, there's just so little data. And if there is data for one league, it's not available for other leagues. So it's going to be really hard to compare players unless it is just adopted very widely across all of high school or something like that. There's exceptions. I mean, in hockey, there's there's been more and more data available for you know leagues for 18 and under uh, players. So that area is growing, but there's definitely not the kind of data that you would really want standardized across leagues and granular enough to make uh, a lot of use of it. I wanted to back up a step. Kirk, you said that 
that sports is the American people we go, the camaraderie to watch these games. But Americans also continue to bet on all aspects of this basketball and other sports phenomena. So last year, American Gaming Association estimated that 97% of the $10 billion wagered on March Madness was done so illegally, and the other 3% was bet through sports books um, legally. <laughs> so, you know, do you think data analytics is really going to change the gambling or fantasy teams um, from fans using data instead of random picks? It already has. And the people I know that are very successful in the gambling world on one side of it or the other uh, have some of the most sophisticated machine learning, artificial intelligence, statistical modeling practices already in place. They ingest as many data sets as they can. They're constantly learning from them and, and, and evolving um, to do everything to set the initial lines or to try to beat the house in some cases. Um, there's a great chapter in Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise, about Bob Volgaris. He's a friend of mine who is uh, a fascinating character in this space. And, and Bob now works for the Dallas Mavericks, but he's made a lot of money by marrying statistical modeling with betting on the NBA. So I think it's already happened, and I think it's going to continue to happen. Sports gambling is like everything else. It's becoming a big data enterprise um, and it's an arms race to who has the best models, the best data sets, and the best intelligence uh, on any side of that thing. So I think it's a great question, and I think the answer is pretty clear. I found it kind of uh, interesting or kind of amusing also that the legalization of betting and, and you know the increased legalization of betting, I should say, has sort of led to data integrity improvements in some cases for the leagues. For example... Player heights are more accurate than they were. So teams will fudge, you know, <laughs> instead of fudging by an inch or two, you have more accurate player heights and things like that. So I, I just thought that was kind of interesting that that is sort of happening right now and it's heavily influenced by the betting industry. You know, that's a great point, Brian. Another one where you didn't see that coming, I think, is the the gamblers become some of the best detectors of, say, questionable officiating in an event or in a sport, whether it's tennis or baseball or basketball, if an official has a set of anomalous calls or uh, calls seven of these weird infractions, they will see that and it'll, it'll turn up as a flag. And, and in a weird way, just as Brian says, that's a really fascinating thing because now the gambling community is helping keeping the leagues honest, which it, it's a fascinating development. So um, on a side note, for our listeners, what tips do you both have for picking their March Madness teams? Jeez, <laughs> uh, have fun with it because that is not a really smart way to make money. I, I would say, you know, play, play, play your bracket and, and try to try to win. But its odds are stacked against you. Um, March Madness is a really random number generator. And in some cases, uh, super random numbers come up. Uh, and we love that. At some point, I actually, as a huge basketball fan, the tournament is still one of my favorite things on the planet. But I stopped filling out a bracket because I felt like it, it kept me from enjoying upsets because it was going to blow up my bracket. Uh, and so I've been a lot happier since I stopped filling out my bracket. And now if a 13 seed's ahead of a 4 seed, I don't get mad because I have the 4 seed going all the way through. Uh, I get happy and I start rooting for the underdog, which is one of the greatest joys in college sports. So... I just enjoy it. 
One of my sort of favorite aspects of March Madness is that Warren Buffett, you know, has agreed to pay a million bucks uh, per year for life to any Berkshire Hathaway employee who guesses the perfect bracket. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, who can blame him for making that offer? The chance of actually doing that is one in 9.2 quintillion. And to give, you know, a perspective of what a quintillion is, you know, if you think of 100 million people with Jeff Bezos's net worth or 200 million after the divorce finalizes. But, you know, I mean, that's a ridiculous number. And different statisticians have estimated the odds of picking the perfect bracket as one in 2.4 trillion or even as low as one in 128 billion based upon how much you data analytics you actually put in to figuring that out. So what do you both think the chances are of the perfect March Madness bracket, even though we know you no longer fill one out, Kirk? Well, I tell you what, if he, it depends on one thing, and I'll ask Warren this next time we talk. Do I get to submit one bracket or can I submit a quintillion brackets? Because then I just talk to my friends at the Harvard Statistics Department and have them write some code and we would generate every possible bracket outcome and submit them all to Mr. Buffett and then we would all get a million dollars uh, and that'd be great. And then we could afford a house in Cambridge. It would be awesome. But then, uh, yeah, it, it, you're never going to fill out a perfect bracket. It, and that's the point of what Warren is saying. Um, you know, one of my favorite slogans uh, about the lottery is it's a tax on the mathematically challenged. People who think they're 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 going to pick a perfect bracket are the same kinds of people who I think put a lot of money in, in, into the lottery and think their number is going to come up. So that's my personal view. Um, but some people have fun with it, and I'm I I can't get mad at that. I'll just say to our listeners out there that also buy lottery tickets, um, you're in good company because I'm clearly <laughs> mathematically challenged as well. Because <laughs> I definitely buy lotto tickets every once in a while. Brian, what do you think? What's the chances? Uh, I mean, it's astronomically small. If it's free to enter, if you're a Berkshire Hathaway employee, then then I say go for it and have fun. But <laughs> uh, I would not consider it a wise investment. And I bet Warren Buffett would agree with that. My final question is really, um, let's say if I were still very young, had a lot more hair, I say I want to get into sports data analytics. What, what should I do? What would be the quick way for me to get into this fascinating area of sports data analytics. Yeah, I'll start with that one. I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things. One, sports data, there's a lot of sports data that's publicly available out there and easy to get online. There's a lot of people doing sports analytics publicly as well. So I would start um, trying to make my way into those communities. We have um, a nice summary page at Carnegie Mellon with lots of data sets and R packages and Python packages that are related to sports uh, data. I would do that. I would also try to find a uh, professor at your school or a teacher, teacher at your school who is interested in sports and wants to start working on that kind of thing with you and sort of be an advisor for a, for a project, an independent study project. And, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the conferences out there will have student poster competitions or student paper competitions. You know, as you're working on this project, work towards some sort of presentation at one of these uh, conferences or a poster at one of these conferences. Great advice. Kirk, you have anything to add? Uh, I would listen to Brian would be my first piece of advice. If I were to add anything, <laughs> I think the way the, the sport analytics space is going is you need an advanced degree to really be a mover and a shaker in the space. You can get this at almost any university, 
But I think you really want to take your curriculum seriously. This is this is a big time statistical endeavor. This is a computer science endeavor now. There was a time where you could just be a little bit clever with a spreadsheet uh, and make your way into the sports analytics, but that, that time is over. Uh, if you really want a big a contribution, you better learn to code, you better learn how to do statistics, um, and you better learn a little bit about computer science. My favorite thing Brian said, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, is you gotta do some projects and you gotta show potential employers that you can apply those advanced skills to the sports world. Don't tell them you can do it, you gotta show them you can do it. And that's why I think what Brian said about finding a project with a professor or on your own and just starting to mess with modeling or big data or visualization in the sports world uh, is the real key so that you have a portfolio of work that then you can show uh, to potential employers to make your dreams come true if, if it is in fact your dream to be a sports analyst. Kirk and Brian, thanks to you both. Kirk Goldsberry is an NBA analyst at ESPN and the author of the book Sprawl Ball, a visual tour of the new era of the NBA. Brian McDonald is a faculty in sports analytics at Carnegie Mellon University. You can read his article, Recreating the Game Using Player Tracking Data to Analyze Dynamics in Basketball and Football on the HDSR website. Thanks for listening. You know, just to be totally frank here, I feel like I just got through this entire conversation with it never coming out that I have never actually seen a basketball game in my entire life and feel very proud of that. Well, I think, uh, you know, I can share a story that uh, probably is much worse than yours in terms of not seeing one. When I got this country now, whatever, 35 years ago now, and I was introduced to uh, football, the real football, not the soccer. And uh, I was introduced to this uh, Harvard Yale Day. But I have to say that uh, the game itself didn't really attract me. What really attracted me was during the halftime, I discovered a hot dog. And I just absolutely loved it. And and I went back and I bought so much hot dogs and the buns, and what do you call it, mustards. And I ate the whole week. I'm going to have to make you a hot dog the next time we have dinner. I'm on it. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs>